This is CISO to CISO, a live podcast focusing on information security, leadership, innovation, and more. Brought to you by Altitude Networks, data security for the cloud. Welcome, everyone. This is another edition of CISO to CISO. I'm your host, Michael Coates, and super excited today to be joined uh, by Chris Holder, uh, who's going to bring lots of interesting discussions. So thanks, everybody, for joining us again. And Chris, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm really excited to uh, to have the dialogue. Yeah, so we're going to dive into some uh, some really interesting topics. For those of you that have been listening, watching, following along, please remember you can watch these webcasts uh, recorded on the Altitude Network's website, um, or you can subscribe to the podcast to listen to them in audio. So whatever format works for you. Uh, and these uh, events are sponsored by Altitude Networks. We're bringing data security to cloud collaboration. So if you're using G Suite, Google Workspace, uh, or Office 365, and you're concerned about people sharing, stealing, leaking, losing your data, that is our sweet spot and we can help you. With that, let's jump in. So Chris, you've been, you're, you're currently head of security at Biomarin Pharmaceutical. You've been uh, a CISO at Clarivate. You've been a CISO at Autodesk. Um, even adventure advisor, you've done a lot of cool stuff. Talk to us about that journey. How did you get to where you are today? Were you were you coming out one day saying, "My life's goal is to be a CISO," or did you find yourself on a winding trail to get there? Yeah. So, so I, you know, I was kind of taking stock of this in preparation and, and realized that. I, so I've been in my career for about twenty five years, and I'd say in tech. Although I think we we would argue that, or I would argue that security is not quite just tech um, and have been really in security leadership roles for about 20 years of that. And um, now I, I, I've worked at a broad type of organizations, primarily, as you said, really in, um, uh, or, or actually you didn't say that yet. I think, you know, I've worked primarily in tech uh, and I've worked in uh, life sciences, um, but I've, I've worked in a range of roles and company sizes and um, say ownership structures in that path. So I really came up through the practitioner ranks and doing that, you know, as you know, um, and, and I'm sure are well aware, especially right now is, is that, you know, you can be a leader, manager and practitioner in startups, right? Um, <laughs> and so, uh, so um you know, I, I've really, uh, I've been at this for a while. I, I would say, looking back, I think I had the ingredients for security, but no, I, I didn't go into it with an expectation that I was going to be focused on security. But the way that I actually got involved in security is I was a network manager at a, at a startup and I was the first person in that morning. And we, we, I had the VP of engineering come in the door frantically looking around for who was there that could do some level of operation support. And he said, we've been hacked, right? And, um, and you know, we brought in Foundstone and we did an assessment and it turned out we had not been in fact hacked that it was just, you know, uh, uh, an outsider, you know, using an exploit and giving us a little bit of information about our environment and offering to pay us consulting fees. And, but, you know, working, working with the early Foundstone guys and just seeing 
that play out connected the dots for me. And I knew going forward that that was going to be uh, a big part of my career going forward. And as my career has progressed, I, I've always owned a portion of security, um, or I should say, I've always owned security as a portion of my role, and then inevitably made the shift into the the just security that's it, the CISO role, um, you know, later in my career. Yeah, the, the the technical track into the CISO role is one I'm seeing more and more. And, um, you know, I may be biased. That was my path as well. Uh, I think earlier on, years ago, we saw we saw leaders taking over the role of security because they needed a leader, but they weren't really equipped with the technical backing. And of, and of course, I think you would argue the same that we should no longer be the most technical person in the room. If, if so, we've done a horrible job at hiring. But having that background to call BS, to ask the right questions, to pose some considerations, you know, I found that to be very helpful. I imagine from, from your path, you might have seen that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's... Um... I think it's a really interesting debate and, and, you know, you say, well, how, how did I get here? And one of the elements of getting here is, is for me has been finding good mentors um, and finding people that I can take um, advice from. Uh, and, and one, uh, one coach that I had at one point uh, said to me that if you want, if you want to find your areas of development, look in the shadow of your strengths. And so hmm. I think, I think, you know, coming up through the technical ranks, to your point, can give you a really good perspective. It can help you to relate to teams more. It can help you see those things. But if you can't release that and put it in the right context and put leadership first, then I think it becomes an overleveraged strength. And I think it actually uh, is more likely to... Um, become an obstacle in you being successful um, than, than it, you know, it being, a, you know, something that's going to lead to success. And, and interestingly, you know, for me, I've, I think I, I think I recognize that early on. Um, but I think you do need to maintain a balance because I think mm -hmm. that I also went to a degree where I was focused almost entirely on leadership. And really uh, empowering and entrusting people, which I believe we should do, but not necessarily fully staying connected at, at even at, you know, at my level for what was appropriate with what was happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I, I do think it requires, you know, I think it's different from company to company and I do think it requires a level of calibration um, and, and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you even alluded to that other part of, you know, describing security as a technical field more more or less, I, I forget your exact words, but I, you hinted at something that has always rang true to me too, which is as technical as we could be or used to be, it's still very much a field about uh, risk and business and humans. And, and yes. those things are a little uh, unexpected at first when you're in there like clacking around at the keyboard, you know, stereotypical green screen, you know, Hollywood movie, like opening your eyes to what security is with everything else like whoa look at all these business factors that are playing into this yeah and i i think and i think that's probably going to be a theme that emerges pretty heavily as we discuss this on on how i try to approach what i do at mm -hmm. this stage and advice that i would have for other people mm -hmm. yeah now you've had a an, another interesting experience that perhaps many people have now had 
but you have started a new security leadership role totally remote in the midst of a you know global pandemic and now you're you know six nine months in what has that all been like i mean starting a new role as head of security is something on its own doing it totally remote with all these right. other things happening that's a whole other bag of things <laughs> yeah so so you know i guess if i I guess if I look at the role itself and what I try to achieve, um, and this, you know, everything I say, I think needs to be adjusted and I recognize that it needs to be adjusted from company to company, but, but, but I have a starting point now at this stage that I try to operate in. And I'd say within the first three months, zero to three months, um, first thing I do when I come in now is I make sure that there's an IR plan in place, because I think no matter what you're doing, if you get caught by an incident and you're unprepared, that could really seal your fate um, at an organization. So, you know, I'm looking at that, I'm figuring out the urgent and important, I'm starting to meet with key stakeholders, I'm assessing the team. By the end of that three months, I, I wanna have a roadmap that I've publicized with, with an understanding that it's progress, not perfection, and I expect to revise it. Three to six months, I start going into execution. I start looking internally at the team I'm working to build. Um, I'm establishing metrics we can see before and after. And then six to 12 is really me starting to continue to execute and move to move to uh, planning year two. So, so as I've been doing that, and I'm about in the middle of that process, and, and for the most part on, on track, I would say um, starting remote, has been odd, but but also quite familiar because I, I'd say that I do really like being nomadic in the way that mm -hmm. I work. And I've worked for multinationals uh, for a good part of my career. So I'm, I'm used to having to be connecting with people um, through means other than face-to-face. I'd say that the really good elements of this is, is that I feel like I have uh, a lot better control of my time uh, at a time when that's really critical, where I really need to process, do deep, you know, some deep thinking, uh, arrange stakeholder meetings. I think the stakeholder discussions, because it's the beginning of relationship building have been good. Um, where I've seen, you know, and I think video, I, I thought about this, I thought, wow, if I, if I was trying to do this uh, over the phone, then I think we'd be having a very different conversation. But I think video at least creates some of that connection. I think some of the challenges that I'm seeing um, is, and, and this does really start talking about some of the differences in uh, what I'm seeing in life sciences as opposed to high tech is, you know, I can't go visit our labs and our manufacturing environments. And I'm a very mm -hmm. visual person. I want to see our processes. And so I haven't been able to do that. So that's been on hold. Um, and then there's always the deeper team building, right? You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I, while I, I want to need time by myself, I also like to connect with people, have fun, be there in person. And so I'd say that the experience feels a little two-dimensional. Um, and, and I'd say that I expect that I'm actually gonna have two start dates at the company. I think I've had oh, my yeah. first start date 
but I do expect that uh, when we return to the office, and I do, I think that'll be different than it was prior to COVID, um, then I start seeing people in context and I see people in group settings and that's a whole new set of observations and cultural lessons for me. So it's, it's, it's been mixed for me, it's been mixed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. your mention of uh, team building uh, is really spot on because the notion of working remote, working from home is certainly not new and companies have done it really well. But even in those realities, you're not still entirely 100% remote from each other. Right. Uh, for people that have worked with me or know me at, at, at Mozilla in particular, my team was in three continents and seven countries. And sure, we're very spread out, but we would come together in person multiple times a year, somewhere in the world, which was you know, right. a, a great treat in itself. But you always had that moment of physical cohabitation to, to lean on, then to go back to your separate ways. And that's been tough, you know, not having that for this past year. Yeah, and, and travel in general for the exact purpose that you point out, right? You can do a lot remotely, but I, I'm with you. I'm a firm believer that you've got to have those face-to-face, in-person moments where you're you're working, but when you're also having dinner together, maybe having drinks yeah. together and and just, you know, getting deepening that connection through just socializing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing I love that you said, uh, and I don't know if everyone caught it, was you mentioned um, focusing on metrics before and after. I think that is a key item that uh, too many people forget about. Um, and, and I love that. that. That's something that I've used as well. Like, if we're going to start a new program, figure out how to measure it today on day zero. So after you've done a bunch of work, we have some way to show that progress. The last thing somebody else wants is, well, what's security? You're like, oh, they're doing stuff. Because then if you're just doing stuff, the only concrete thing that they know is, oh, there was a breach. Well, what else have you been doing if you failed, air quotes, failed on this breach, which I, I think is a misnomer. But that metrics is, is really a, a great focus. Yeah. And as, as with most things, Michael, I, I've learned that through failing on it a number of times, well, you know, that is, where, that is how we all I've, progress. I agree. <laughs> I've, I've, I've implemented the project and thought, you know, multiple projects and looked back and thought, God, I really wish we would have captured what this looked like before, because mm -hmm. you know, who, who knows at this stage. So, yeah. Yep. Now, for, for those of you that are listening to us uh, on the podcast, you're missing out on one key thing that we're going to dive into, which is the you know, Altitude Network's virtual jet, uh, the best money that uh, you know, virtual can buy. Uh, and I've taken Chris around the world. And uh, Chris, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about why you chose where we are and, and, and what this location is. Yeah, and I've told you this multiple times. I just love the fact that you do this, uh, you know, because... <laughs> You know, I, I think the you know the the key for me is this is a this was a special moment in my life. Um, so uh, this is so what we're looking at is we're looking at the uh, Kiyomizu Dera, which is a temple in Kyoto. Um, why it's meaningful for me is I, I had I wanted to go to Japan my entire life. Um, I missed a number of opportunities, both personally and for work. And as my children um, uh, started to get older, they also really wanted to go. So I took my 12-year-old son at the time uh, on this trip. And um, so this is a Buddhist temple um, that was founded uh, in like 778 
Not a single nail was used in the entire structure. Um, this building itself um, was, was constructed in 1633. So just kind of the rich history of that. I would say um, going there and being in nature uh, was just a, it was a kind of a spiritually moving experience, right? Um, and, uh, and the meaning behind all of it. And so it's named after, the, the name means clear water, pure water. And um, it's named after a waterfall within the complex. And, and water comes down through three channels. And I'm gonna show you my picture in a second. You've got the, you've got the, you know, the well Photoshopped view of the entire thing, right? Um, but there's, uh, when going to these temples, there's a, a, a purification ritual. And normally it's, a, it's done in uh, an area that's about the size of a table. Um, and in this particular case, though, it's these, uh, it's water, it's a waterfall that's coming down from the mountain into three streams. And I'll, I'll shut myself out of this for a second. So that's me, you have to reach out. So I'm 6'3". So I'm reaching out and you're, you're getting this rushing water go by that you then capture in a cup and then you go through this ritual you know this cleansing of you clean your hands and then you clean your mouth and then you inevitably clean the stick and place it back and so um just going through this was a great experience finding these photos and reliving that with my son it was really meaningful i i did find out in doing research that um uh long ago in this uh, place that people would actually jump from the stage and it was a 43 foot drop and they believe that if they survived they got a wish and so what what would be your guess michael on the percentage of people who survived that jump 43 oh. feet oh no maybe one out of five <laughs> yeah so it was 85 percent 85.4 percent so i'm happy i didn't know that metric at the time because i, I like those odds i think i probably would have given oh, no. it a shot oh man <laughs> I wonder so, how many yeah, people were so, wishing to survive as they were falling down. Yeah, and I guess, you know, survive is a, is kind of a relative term, right? Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, they lived, but, you know, a 43-foot drop, that's pretty significant. Wow. So, yeah, so be beautiful place. Uh, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and once COVID is done, we will also be taking a trip to Japan, so. Oh, wow. That's wonderful. Thank, I mean, thank you for sharing that. That's that's quite the the memory, and uh, you know what a fantastic spot for us to to be at. Let's see. So stepping back to something uh, that you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, from your career, it's very it's fascinating that you've seen the world of security in you know two distinct uh, domains, and by that I mean like industries. I think for all of us that operate in in security roles, we know that each industry has its own nuances, its own most important factors. Um, so what has it been like moving from, you know, tech, tech dominated focused companies into the life sciences uh, industry? Does security look and feel different or you must have at least different top risks or motivations that kind of guide your day? Sure. So, I mean, I, I think as a starting point, I love working at innovative companies with smart people with big mm -hmm. challenges, right? So, so that definitely um, exists in both, in all of the companies that I've worked at in both high tech and, and life sciences. 
I think, you know, uh, you, you had made a comment earlier, I think, um, around, you know, understanding the business or something that, that you know, kind of stuck with me on, uh, you know, really kind of understanding the business and the, and the core of that. And so I do try to dive in and understand the business beyond a superficial level. And I would say in high tech, it's, you know, you know, as technologists, we're, we have a lot more underpinning um, skills and knowledge that we can immediately apply to what the product is and how we get that out. Um, I don't have a background as a scientist. And so as you look at biotech, there are just some, um, there are some pretty significant topics that are complex. There are a lot of, you know, we have a lot of, you know, the smartest minds in the world in their space PhDs have spent, you know, their lives and, you know, careers working on acquiring this knowledge. And so um, one of the big differences is, and, and I, I do, I did work at Genentech, so I do, I do have some transferable knowledge that I'm able to bring over. Um, but, but, you know, it's, that's still a learning curve and, and it's an exciting one. Um, I would say um, 80% you know, just pulling that number out of the air, let's, let's say a lot of the fundamentals are the same, mm -hmm. right? I, I do think to your point, you know, you have a different set of risks. Um, you know, uh, you, you have different data sets protecting those different data sets, um, you know, in different ways. I think, you know, you're trying to keep certain services online for different purposes. I think, I think, you know, I, I don't think I approach this. I'm a huge advocate of the NIST cybersecurity framework, primarily because of the levels of abstraction that it introduces. I think you and I might have had this conversation. I think it totally misses the mark on software security, but that's <laughs> where you can use something like, you know, uh, you know, OpenSAM. I think what... Um, I think what gets introduced in this space, which is an interesting in life sciences, which is an interesting new view, is operations technology, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we've 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 heard CIA uh, confidentiality, integrity, and availability forever. And we've you know, people have played around with accountability and other elements, but when dealing with operations technology, you do really need to take into account reliability and safety. Um, and, and you know, you have to start thinking in terms of Stuxnet, right? Like you're talking about pieces of equipment or, or any of that long history where we've really started to understand that uh, security can impact industrial control systems and can and create a physical event, right? And, and that's interesting. That's that's not something that I. I mean, it make it, it, ironically, you know, I'm listening to a lot of these books in parallel. Sandworm, you know, just uh, the the hacker in the state, just just for enjoyment. Um, and it it didn't immediately connect to me of like, oh no, no, you're in that environment now where you really have to make sure that what is getting deployed is not going to affect the safety of people who. Are, are working on that. So that, that's new and exciting. Um, along those lines with, uh, uh, you know, operations technology is you're dealing with uh, very long life cycles, right? So 
if you kind of look at the, the timeline where we as an industry have started thinking about um, uh, security as it relates to operations technology, um, it, it, it's fairly recent. Um, and yet some of the life cycle of this equipment is 20 years old. And so mm -hmm. how do you, you know, yeah. you know, I think in a traditional high tech corporate environment, you've got a lot of churn, you've got cloud providers and all of those things do apply here, but, but they can start rethinking security and integrating into that into their products. But when you're dealing with a device that's controlling a valve or a piece of equipment and the intent is to have that last as long as they possibly can and try not to interrupt it to impact reliability, um, it becomes interesting in how you, you take on that challenge of securing that from against modern security challenges, uh, again, without necessarily the vendor having put those things in place ahead of time. Um, compliance, I think, are, are motivators in my experience in both places with cloud companies. I think compliance is, uh, is customer-driven compliance. Um, but in life sciences, it's, it's really regulatory driven compliance and it's far more substantial. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I'd say those are the things that are starting to emerge as the differences. Um, but then again, I think we're having the same conversations about what's the foundation that we need to build. How do we move from projects to talking about capabilities and then inevitably how do we flip that whole thing onto what are the risks that the company faces and how do we actually have a program that manages those risks? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, commonality wise, we all talk about fundamentals like you should just like, why is it so hard to patch things like we should just patch it's the basics. Right. Uh, and I think we know even at enterprise scale just in general. Like sure, conceptually, it's simple to push the button of update, but that's not the thing holding us back. It's asset inventory, it's downtime, it's backwards compatibility, all these things. But I can only imagine yeah. thinking about all of those challenges on top of this is some sort of industrial control life sciences, 20 year old piece of machinery. Like what's gonna happen <laughs> if we try right. to update something here? That, that must be a whole sorts of unique challenge. Right. And, and, you know, what I, what I would imagine, and I, I know I'll get a deeper experience with vendors with this is, is that, look, if you're buying a product now, I would hope that a lot of vendors are, um, have been giving this some thought and do have the appropriate mm -hmm. hooks in place and so on. But if you're on year 15 of something that you're going to be running right. for 20 years, you know, that's an entirely different conversation. Yep. Yep. And then the other thing you mentioned that um, that I liked was the the nuances around yes yeah, CIA, but also safety and um, uh, reliability. I believe. Yeah, reliability. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great way of looking at it because, as you also mentioned, that all ties in together to fundamentally, like what is the risk? Like each of those are individual components, and right. far too often we, I think, growing in the security field, you may look at something in isolation. And really, when you step back, the question is, what is this risk? Like, where should we prioritize this? Um, and I know that's something that uh, you've been thinking a lot about, this, this connection between like figuring out what the risk really is, and then what should we specifically do? Like, what are the specific actions that should, should be taken or should be captured or recorded along those lines? Uh, 
talk talk to us more about that. Like, what what have you been learning going down that that journey? Yeah. So, um, I, probably a great example of this is I, I sat on a panel for the NACD, um, and and I can't remember the exact title, but the topic really was how do you communicate effective, how, how do CISOs and board members effectively communicate about security? Mm-hmm. And um, it was a great, it was a great discussion. One of the board members, I think summed it up well, and, and there was a lot of, you know, head nodding in the room after she had made this comment, was <laughs> you could, you could hear the frustration in her voice as she said this was, you know, we, we have all the other teams, all the other functions in the organization come in and we know what to expect. We know how they're going to talk about the metrics in their area or the risk in their area. And then we see security on the agenda or security shows up in the room and we have no idea what we're going to get. Right. <laughs> and and yeah. it's I think it's a fair comment and, and um, I think it's absolutely fair. And being on the other end of that, that's equally as frustrating for me because I, I am a, a huge believer in the idea that we, we want to be able to, to show our, our most senior stakeholders and actually down to the practitioner level, here is the whole of what we can be working on. Um, but this is what we're choosing to work on right and and i think you know for me that started by talking about capabilities and in in almost every organization that i went to probably more so you know 10 years ago um i I would ask people well what do you think goes into a you know key stakeholders what do you think goes into a program and i'd get antivirus i'd get patching i'd get a few things and then i would show a framework and they would be surprised by how many moving parts were involved in security. Um, and then I would explain, but look, we're not going to we're not going to get all of the not not all of these are you know we have different levels of concern and we need to bring these to different levels of maturity. And, and they would get that conversation, and then we would move forward doing that. And then the conversation would naturally move to, but when are we done, and why? Why to this? Why this capability to this degree? And I think you know. I think when we're dealing in terms of foundation, we can we could probably agree that you just made the comment about asset management, and I I I beat this drum all the time, which is you know it's it's it might be boring, but it's it's core and it's foundational to what we do. And if you're not getting that right, how do you how do you get all the layers on top of that right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, really being able to, um, uh, it, we could probably agree that that's an area that we want to get to a base level of reproducible maturity, right? But there, and there are other areas where, you know what, maybe we're okay with it, you know, along the CMMI, maybe we're okay with it too. It's not that important mm-hmm. to us, but this one, this one's got to be a four or a five, right? And, and so that to me, and this is where risk comes in, is that to me is where we should be talking about risk. And, the, and, and I say this with, uh, you know, I try to be humble as I say this because 
maybe there are people out there who have feel feel like they've solved this problem. You know, I've cast I've cast my net far and wide, and and have yet to really hear someone come back with something that I think is practical. I've done a lot of research, and don't feel like I'm I feel like I'm getting closer to solving this problem. But what I think would be an ideal situation, similar to a taxonomy or a, a you know a framework for capabilities or controls, which we had prior to that, would be for us to be, be able to go in, have a common language for what what are we even talking about with the risk? Because you can, and, and all parties are right, you can have a risk register that's got 900 items that are very tactical in nature. Um, or you can have 13 items that are very strategic and no one's wrong in that. I think as you're talking to the board or executives, you, you probably don't want to present the 800 item, right? You know, yep. but, but how do we get those high level strategic risks outlined in a way that can be understood easily? You know, and I've been exploring FAIR. I think there's a lot of potential in FAIR as an example in going to quantification. But I'd say some of the some of the risk statements that come out of fair, I don't understand, right? And so mm -hmm. it might be the best methodology out there, but if it can't be translated to people that is in a way that they're like, I got it. You showed me five things. This is what you're saying we should focus on. I understand the, the math behind that, the rationale, and let's go that direction. And, and I think I think inevitably with risk discussions, that's what we need where we need to get i don't i personally don't feel that it needs to be so mathematically sound that it's defensible you know internally to you know if we brought in math mathematicians yeah i think that it needs to be grounded in enough reality and critical thought to generally make sense and and be beyond us just measuring what our interpretation of risk is and then I think that needs to be matched with, okay, we know that these are our risks. What capabilities will have the biggest bang for the buck in our environment? Um, and then let's go do those, right? And, and I, I, I've had lots of conversations on this. I feel like we're getting closer as an industry. I don't think we're there. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, my passion, as I had said earlier, you know, starting at about my, you know, six to 12 month period, I start gently introducing the idea of risk. I would expect that going into next year, my, my personal focus is going to be almost exclusively on putting the structure in place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the I mean, that notion of, of prioritizing and thinking about it from risk makes fundamental sense. And I, I've I've leveraged that as well. And what I found helpful is, is I agree with you in terms of the, like the mathematics on how precise it needs to be. I describe it as it needs to be directionally accurate, but totally agree. But otherwise, like there's such margin of error anyways in each calculation, just because you multiply 10 numbers with medium confidence doesn't mean you have any more confidence at the end than those 10 medium things uh, itself. Um, one of the things that I found very helpful with that is when you do have a an ordering of your kind of key risks or key projects that back into those risks, it worked really well for um, almost budgeting conversations, where someone say, "Hey, 
number six seems really important. Why aren't we doing it? Like, well, number one through five, we can agree are higher risk and I've run out of resources through items one through five. And so we can debate if the risks are right or we can debate how much money we wanna spend. Um, I can do whatever you want. We can draw the line in the sand anywhere we want to. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's the ideal conversation. I think that's the end state. And I think what's important in, in my humble opinion for a CISO is to not be too wed to that outcome. Because I, I think at, at the end of the day, it's our responsibility to, um, and this role is different at every company. So, so uh, I'll speak from my own experience. I think it's to be able to articulate that in a way that's understood and get that decision in front of the right business decision makers. And sometimes that business decision maker is the CISO. Mm -hmm. But in many cases, um, it's distributed through the organization. And I, I think you know the best that we can do in that situation is articulate it with the best information we have, let them make the, the decision. And then their part in that is, hey, look, if the risk manifests, then, then just understand that can happen. And if we need to revisit, let's revisit. But, but you know, you have to expect to some degree that it's going to manifest. Um, yeah. Yeah, I guess you know, based on likelihood. So yeah. couldn't agree couldn't agree more on that. Yeah, I, I think somehow we've been cast into the the destroyers of all risk, which is not true. Like we are enablers of strategic risk taking decisions for the business. So however the business wants to like strategically move forward, we're going to give them all that information. So boom, you can make that best informed choice. Uh, you know, for example, if we were making skateboards as a business and we were destroying all risk, we'd have the most piece of junk skateboard with you know, foam padding <laughs> yeah. everywhere. No wheels. Yeah. yeah, nobody would buy yeah. that thing. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. Uh, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with someone else about kids and bikes and safety third, but that's a that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. Yeah. So, you know, looking at your journey and, and how you've gotten here, kind of circling back, someone's yeah. starting fresh. They're entering the security field and they're saying, you know what, I do want to be a CISO one day. I kind of get what I'm getting into or will be, but what what kind of advice might you have to them at the beginning of that journey? Yeah, I, I'd say maybe regardless of um, maybe regardless if if you know along the way you decide that well it's not not a CISO role but you want to be successful in this industry and I think definitely if you want to move into a CISO role is I think you always need to be developing right it's it's an industry that's always developing. Um, I think, you know, my advice to almost everyone is you need to treat yourself like a business and always be working to be relevant. And development to me is not just, you know, certifications, technical skills. It's, it's about skills and qualities, right? Um, so, uh, you know, and doing that in a community and, and getting feedback on what your blind spots are and being courageous about that, I think are absolutely key. I, again, another, another person along the way, you know, said to me or asked me the question, what's, what's better, someone with two years of experience or 10 years of experience? And, and it really depends. It depends on what each of those people do with that experience and are they analyzing it, getting better, you know, um, so I, I'd say I'd say always be developing. I would I'd say this is something I really notice people do 
failed to do early in their careers, and that's pay attention to the business. And um, it can be intimidating. Uh, frequently, I think people will look at it and say, I'll get there, but I got to work on these other things. I'd say work to understand the business. Um, and, and probably most important there is pay really close attention when your business is going through some level of transformation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then spend some time with that. How are people acting differently? What's changed in the business? And, and I think earlier in your career, you can really impress people if you say, oh, hey, I was, I was at this company uh, during this acquisition and this transition. You know, I think you could really be unimpressive if people ask you, well, what did you think of that? And you're like, oh, I just kept working on my stuff. You know, <laughs> it's a missed opportunity. I think as you get more senior, you're expected to really understand and process and, and be able to speak to that and your contribution to that. Um, and, and, you know, don't get comfortable. Uh, it's just not a, it's not a, uh, it's not a space that, uh, you know, don't specialize too early, find where your, uh, where your uh, weaknesses are, kind of attack those, you know, just be, be in development mode, especially early on in your career. Um, yeah, where, where you can, where you can afford slip ups, where you can make fast career changes, all of those things, right? Like take advantage of that early in a career. Mm-hmm. No, fantastic advice. No, I think that's great. Uh, well, Chris, we covered a lot of ground. Anything that I uh, sped us through and you had some additional thoughts, anything we missed? Um, I, the only thing I would probably add, I think that this is, uh, you know, in our, in our discussions ahead of time and probably here is, would be, you know, the, the advice for um, maybe when someone gets the role of CISO, mm-hmm. so this person who's who's gone through it and now has the job, is do the work that only the CISO can do, mm-hmm. right? Yep. You know, uh, lots of different books, lots you know, call, you know, mention it in different ways. It's like you know, promote yourself and so on. But but there there are certain things that a CISO needs to do that no one else is going to do. And in some cases, no one has done at the company before. And risk is a great example. It's a, it's a tough area to nail down. Your company may not be well-versed in it, but, but if you're not doing it, no one's going to be. And, and your comfort level might be, well, I'm just going to stay in the trenches with my team and, and you know, be, be the kind of senior, senior architect. And I'd say mm-hmm. that, that to, to me, it's different from company to company, but, but I don't see that being the long-term CISO role. So I would say when you get the role, promote yourself and, and do the role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yep, I agree. that's great. I couldn't agree more. Very good. Well, Chris, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for picking this beautiful location to, uh, to fly us to. I don't uh, this is a really good. Yeah, this is a really good conversation. Really enjoyed yeah, it. Likewise, everyone that's, I really did too. For everyone that's listening and watching, um, please don't miss out on future or past episodes. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, follow the webcasts, and you'll see other uh, great guests just like we had today with Chris. Thanks again. Great. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Michael. Take care.